With sports car racing news and analysis from around the globe, this is the Double Stint Podcast. Here's John DeGeese and Ryan Marine. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Double Stint, Sports Car 365's weekly sports car racing podcast in Naples, Florida, currently. I'm Ryan Marine. John DeGeese joining us, I believe, from Miami. Is that where you are right now, John? A little north of Miami, but um, close enough. All right, cool. And we'll be uh, headed to Sebring here pretty soon on the second leg of our Florida Double Dip at St. Petersburg last weekend. And we'll be talking about Pirelli GT4 America Sprint Racing at St. Petersburg in just a little while. We've got news from the week to get to on the show as well. An interview with Jade Buford, who won race number two, very nearly won race number one as well over the weekend at St. Petersburg. Plenty to talk to him about regarding that weekend, but uh, also looking ahead to Michigan Pilot Challenge at Sebring. We've got listener questions and then the big preview of the upcoming weekend WEC and IMSA both in action at Sebring. It's a full slate of activities. We're gearing up for our coverage. It's going to be a a pretty monumental weekend, that's for sure. So a lot to talk about at the tail end of the show. But, John, we'll start with the weekend that was on the streets of St. Petersburg. Pirelli GT4 America Sprint Season Openers. Uh, Ian James with the win in race number one. He did it with a dramatic pass. And Jade Buford, who I mentioned earlier, nearly won race number one. He came back and dominated race number two. All in all, I thought the GT4 cars put on a pretty good show. What did you make of what we saw over the weekend? Yeah, I think it was a very entertaining pair of races. Um, We didn't really know what exactly to expect, especially because GT3 cars had more or less taken the center stage for SRO America at this event in the past Um, This is the first time GT4 was the headline class, you know, not the headline race. Obviously, that was the Indy cars, but um, sort of the headline sports car series, per se, you know, over the weekend. And a lot more attention was put on these cars. And it was great to sort of see it all develop over the weekend. I'm sure there was some controversy with a a mid-weekend BOP change and didn't really make many friends there in the paddock about that. But um, all in all, I think it put on uh, the both races were very entertaining. Um, some great passing, you know, st- street circuits, always a, a tough place to, to pass. And we saw some pretty cool moves um, by a number of drivers over the weekend. Yeah, we really did. Ian James race winning pass was uh, certainly one of them. It, what, what struck me, though, was as strong as Spencer Pompelli and, and the, the, the Porsche Cayman package was over the course of the weekend. Um, even through qualifying, even after the BOP change, come the race, they really didn't seem to have the pace of their competitors. And, and again, what we saw was Paynos and also the Mustang really, really strong this weekend. Yeah, and, and, and some of that could have been down to the BOP. You know, the the, the Porsche got a, a 10 kilo weight increase where there was a lot of cars that got weight decreases um, following uh, the Friday's action prior to qualifying. And I know speaking to Kevin Buckler, um, team owner of TRG, he's extremely displeased over the BOP process, over what unfolded. Um, but to make it clear, this is nothing new. We've seen BOP changes um, in the middle of the weekend before we actually had one at this event last year. And I think a lot of it sort of you know comes down to how the, the regs are written. Um, there is... Um, there's no final homologation for the Porsche, for instance, for next, for this year yet. There's a, a BOP test that happened this weekend in uh, Paul Ricard to determine the specifications for everything. So 
um, SRO has been sort of working on provisional guidelines to how to balance this new Porsche and how to balance the McLaren, another updated car, updated car in that case, a brand new Porsche otherwise. Um, so it, it was an interesting dynamic to what we saw over the weekend. But you're right. The, I was, the, the Porsches really weren't anywhere to be seen, you know, in the race other than Pompelli. But obviously he had some challenges, um, in the, especially in the second half of, of both races. It seemed like maybe you know, the car wasn't as good in the first as in the first half. Yeah, that is the way it appeared. The other curiosity to me was the relatively quiet debut for Black Dog Speed Shop with their McLarens. I, I, had, I think they came into the weekend with some high expectations. I know from talking to Michael Cooper that, that they were really hoping to put on a good show for the McLaren folks who invested heavily in Michael, making him a McLaren factory driver and and also just uh, their involved involvement with the Black Dog team after so many years with GM products. And what we saw was really, you had to look basically to, to find what they were doing. They weren't featured in the battle for the overall win. Uh, Tony Gaples was sort of in the mix for the AM win, but really I, I was surprised, John, about the way that uh, that debut came for the Black Dog McLarens. Yeah, and we also have to remember it's still very early days with Black Dog and McLaren. Um, they had a pretty limited test earlier, I believe, at Coda um, in the lead-up to this race. Um, both Tony and Michael are still coming to grips with the car. It's an updated package. I was pretty impressed with what Tony was able to do, actually, to be honest. He you know, scored a podium in race one, um, was fighting for the win in race two, the class win for, for in the M division, and unfortunately had a spin and I think had another incident in the last couple laps, but... Um, I don't think they would be considered as a, as a failure of a weekend for them. I think that they learned a lot and, and definitely, you know, looking to build on, on things in, in the races to come. So what do you think about this? We have we saw the GT4 Sprint X debut the previous weekend at Circuit of the Americas. Now we have the Sprint Series starting. So the SRO season here at America now fully underway there just seems to be a lot of GT4 content. I guess the the bright side of it is clearly there are teams and drivers interested in being part of Sprint and Sprint X. For me, though, it's it's a little bit much sometimes trying to keep it all straight. And I do kind of wonder if this might be a season in which they're trying to figure out what the future direction is, and, and that might involve streamlining this somewhat. What do you make of what we've seen here for the the first two weeks of the season for the GT4 side of things? Yeah, frankly, it's been a bit confusing from the competitor standpoint, from the fan standpoint, just trying to keep track of all the different GT4 series. And I think you're spot on, Ryan, in that I think GT4 in America will look a lot different next year, um, probably less series, um, more catering to whatever series is more popular. And we saw 20 cars this weekend for the sprint season opener which is a good i think we'll be seeing a similar number for long beach maybe a few more cars i know james safronis is looking to run in one of his audis there for instance um but in terms of sprint x you know we had a fair grid at coda but that was with east and west the regional series combined there and we're not going to have a triple race a triple series race again on that season and actually the next west race will be a standalone round in support of the Intercontinental GT Challenge um, California 8 Hours. And I was trying to talk to some people in the paddock over the weekend to figure out how many cars we're going to see there. And so far, it looks maybe, you know, in the range of 10 or 12 cars. So I I think right now, um, SRO America is definitely sort of just evaluating what works, what doesn't. I'm sure it's a little confusing now, but hopefully by next year we can, 
know, maybe have a better firm grasp on on things and 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 maybe it'll be more streamlined as as you said. All in all, it was an entertaining weekend on the streets of St. Petersburg. We don't get a lot of these doubleheaders, or or I should say the, the joint weekends with IndyCar, which I think I can understand from the competitor standpoint why they've moved away from this. The drivers would like more seat time. I talked to a lot of drivers, especially those who were new to St. Pete or, or even in some cases making their series debuts, that this was really a challenge because there just wasn't much time on track. Nevertheless, there is the built-in component of, of having a big crowd on hand, and it was a real festival atmosphere, which was great to see, and to showcase the GT4 cars over the weekend in front of a big crowd, especially on Sunday. Uh, I really thought that was something special. It was it was neat for me, uh, walking around on pit lane, um, I could hear the crowd reacting to the things they were seeing on the Jumbotron, and, and that was fun. It was a real festival environment, like I said, and, and so looking forward to seeing these cars in a similar venue at Long Beach a little later. Do want to mention that Alan Brynjolfsson and Preston Calvert both had wins in the AM category in Race 1 and Race 2, respectively. And uh, for all of our coverage from the weekend at St. Pete, you can find it, of course, at sportscar365.com. With that, though, let's take our first break, and we'll turn our attention to the news of the week in sports car racing next on Double Stint. I'm Lawson Ashenbach. You're listening to SportsCar 365's Double Stint Podcast. Back on Double Stint, time to dive into the news here, John. And we'll start with some big news out of the WEC. We've talked a lot on this show about Hypercard, the direction that the LMP1 replacement platform is going to go, and there is a little more information and consequently a lot more questions after some news was released last week about production cars now going to be included in the 2020 hypercar regulations. Can you spell out exactly what that means first and foremost and how this varies from the rules as they were initially announced? Well, as it stands now, as it was relayed in the FI World Motorsport Council last week, it basically states that production-based supercars, hypercars, will be allowed into the category alongside purpose-built prototypes, as initially spelled out in the regulations that were released last December. Um, we don't have any further information than that. Actually, I think this announcement by by the FIA sort of caught the WEC out, out by surprise. Um, they weren't ready to put out any further information um, it lets a little bit of a confusion over the weekend. Um, hopefully we'll get some more clarity this week at Sebring. That's the intention. I, I believe Gerard Nouveau and Pierre Fion will have a roundtable session with the media on Friday um, prior to the 1,000 miles of Sebring. Um, we certainly hope we'll have more information then. Um, but what it sort of means for the future, it's still a bit unclear. Personally, from the way I interpret the rules, I, I think we could see cars like the McLaren Senna, the Aston Martin Valkyrie, um, cars that are literally based on production machines, much like we see in GTE Pro, those cars look, uh, appear to maybe compete with prototypes, for a lack of a better word, um, with hypercar styling. Um, this is something that's been proposed by manufacturers, you know, dating quite a few months back. Um, it never was seriously taken up, and I think that. It appears that a bunch of manufacturers um, led by Aston Martin sort of got together and, and proposed this to the FIA, said, hey, we, the only way for us to consider the, the categories, we need production-based cars. And 
Um, the FIA was quick to approve it because we don't currently have any other major manufacturer committed to this new platform that's supposed to debut in just over 14 months. Yeah, the timeline is something I'm going to talk about in just a moment, but why now? Why was this message received now if manufacturers had been asking for something along these lines previously? What what about the current situation got the FIA's attention? It appears that Toyota was uh, very much in favor of a prototype-based formula. Basically, what we saw with the, the release of the initial regulations now, how that sort of shifted in the, in the last few months, it remains unclear. But I, I think that the FIA is now trying to please all parties to make sure they can get as much manufacturer involvement as possible. Um, but at this point, I'm still personally very skeptical whether we can see new cars on the grid in time for 2020, 2021, as you know, it's like I said, only months away if you, if you look at it. Um, these cars would have to be ready in time for the prologue, which would, you know, if all indications are of this year's, this season, next season's prologue, it would have to be in July, you know, of, of 2020. So it's a really crucial time. And, you know, I, I'm still a bit speechless over this. You could probably tell. I, I It's hard to really predict or say anything at this point until we sort of get more reaction from manufacturers um, more details from the FIA and ACO, and hopefully we, that'll all come this week. Yeah, what puzzles me is the initial regulations were crafted by a roundtable of manufacturer representatives who were supposed to be interested in the the regulations that they proposed and were ultimately accepted. And now we see effectively that same group of manufacturers switch and and make it about face and ask for something different. That's all well and good, I suppose, as long as people do come to the table. So who who do you think is actually interested? Which of the manufacturers, you mentioned Aston Martin, but who else might this entice? And uh, yeah, what, what, what kind of optimism do we have that, that we're going to have a, a decent grid when the, the regs first debut? I, I think it's probably the same group of players we've seen in the discussions. Um, Aston Martin, McLaren, Ferrari, um, you know, Toyota. Uh, I don't think this means anything to Ford, for instance, because it looks like the Ford GT program will be wound down. Funnily enough, you know, you could probably put a Ford GT in the hypercar class now. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't take much to change the regs for, based on their GTE Pro car, give it some more power or whatnot. Um, that would make things awfully confusing. And I think that's my biggest concern out of all this is that this is these regs sort of make it look like it's GTE Pro on steroids in, in some regards. Okay, of course, we don't have a Valkyrie racing in GTE Pro, but we do have a Ford GT, and that's basically the market of cars that you know this, these new regs are going after. So personally, I think it's a big, big mess right now, and I don't know what to make of it. Um, I sort of feel this is a last-ditch effort made by the FIA and ACO to try to save this series, save the WEC, because there's no significant manufacturer interest. There's no significant manufacturer commitment with these new regs and with time running out, it's clear they don't want to adopt DPI. They have no other option. If they continue with the current regs another year, then things are going to end up even worse because we see the disparity between the Toyotas and the LMP1 non-hybrids now. So they're looking for a quick fix, but I'm not sure this is it. When the hypercar regulations were first unveiled, there was some concern 
even then about what that would mean for GTE moving forward with cars taking clear styling cues and perhaps even more than that to towards actual road going cars something that we don't really see with with bespoke prototypes this sounds like it is effectively a road going car that has been modified significantly for this class and i would think those concerns about gte would only be raised at this point um because of the even greater similarity between what we're talking about here with these road-going hypercars and, and what we see in GTE, it's probably too soon to say, but what does this potentially do for the GTE category moving forward? Well, I, I think it sort of puts GTE in a big question mark, no doubt, because even looking at next season in WEC, there's a strong chance we may only have six cars and three manufacturers represented in the first place between um, BMW potentially leaving and looks like Ford will not be returning uh, with its GT and GTE pro. So, you know, yeah, it, it sort of puts everything in, in jeopardy, um, not just GTE, but what does the future of GT3 mean? If there's no GTE, what does a series like IMSA do um, with uh, a new, uh, new and updated GTE cars on the way from Corvette and, and other manufacturers? It, it it's sort of this is a seismic change in in the world of, of sports car racing, and I think everybody's on pins and needles right now trying to figure out what's going to happen in the next twelve to twenty four months. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So, yeah, we'll be uh, trying to talk to the important folks involved in this as we get to to Sebring and, and as the weeks and months pass from there, just to try and stay on top of all of this. This is ever changing, so keep it tuned to Sports Car Three Sixty Five for all the latest as. We continue to pursue as many of these details as we can find, but at the moment it's still very early days, so we'll do our best to stay on top of it, that's for sure. Let's uh, get to the here and now, though, for the WEC. They were testing at Sebring in anticipation of the upcoming 1,000-mile race. What were the takeaways for you, John, from the WEC test at Sebring as we now enter race week for uh, the WEC's return to the airport circuit in Florida? Well, it's clear that the Toyotas are extremely fast, even LMP1s in general. Mike Conway unofficially broke the the Sebring track record um, twice, put both in the opening day, and then he made an improvement on the second day, ultimately ending up with a 141.152 lap time in the number seven Toyota. And that's um, close to three seconds faster than what Sebastian Bourdais um, had done in 2009 in a Peugeot. That was a lap record in the race. Marcel Fassler in 2013 went a little bit slower, but that was the qualifying record in an Audi back then. Either way, Toyota smashed the records. I, I guess, you know, that's to be expected, and it'll most likely officially come once on-track action, you know, kicks off with, with practice and qualifying and, and whatnot later in the week. But um, no doubt the Toyotas are hooked up on the track. Um, SMPs looked pretty impressive as well, pace-wise, although the number 11 car of Vitaly Petrov had a sizable accident from what we heard from eyewitnesses. Um, the front end of the car was severely damaged towards the end of the second day on Sunday. Um, luckily, um, Petrov was okay. Um, so, you know, it was interesting to sort of see how a lot of these teams came onto the track and, and sort of came to grips of Sebring because for many of them, it was their first time there. Yeah, that's going to be one of the fun aspects of this weekend, watching some of these teams adapt to Sebring for the first time, or at least the first time in a long time. 
What about the gap between the hybrids and the non-hybrids? You mentioned the S&Ps. They were certainly fast, but still, there is a pretty sizable gap between the two, and it seems like reliability is probably the only thing that might uh, uh, allow the non-hybrids to contend for a win or, or a finish in the top two. At least that's the way I read it. What about you? Yeah, I, I think it's no different than what we've seen at other races. Um, actually, maybe even worse, because we saw the rebellions on pace um, in, in the Asian leg of the, of the championship. This time, you know, I guess it's still early days. You know, still rebellion could come back. Um, SMP could find more speed. But I think Toyota feels there's more speed in their cars, too. Sure. So, um, you know, it, I'm not really looking at this as a fight between Toyota and the non-hybrids. I think it's more of a continuation of what we've seen in the season. But as you said, reliability could definitely play a big factor. And um, I know Toyota's done quite a few testing days here. They had a private, a three-day private test, um, a shared test with some other WEC competitors. But outside of this official test um, this past weekend, they had three days at Sebring. They left all their equipment over. Um, they're definitely taking this event seriously. And, um, you know, I, I would expect them to have a, a strong outing. There were some notable incidents from the test. You mentioned the one involving Vitaly Petrov and SMP Racing, but uh, two others also worth noting, I think, especially the fire for Team Project One. Yeah, uh, myself and, and Dan Lloyd, uh, we were just arriving from St. Petersburg. As we drove into the circuit, we saw all the cars in, in um, slowing down uh, under the red flag procedure and all of a sudden flames billowing out um, right underneath the brand new bridge the crossover bridge into uh, Green Park, and um, we dashed right over there really quickly. Clearly saw it was um, Jörg Bergmeister in the Project 1 Porsche. Thankfully, he climbed out of the car under his own power, um, but uh, a massive blaze at the back of that Porsche. Um, have to think it's some kind of oil or fuel line that, that caused that, but um, it's resulted in the team having to ship in a brand-new Porsche chassis from Germany in time for the race, and that was a surprising move to me, actually, because I thought there would be a spare car somewhere in the U.S. that they could borrow, um, especially, you know, from the, the factory core autosport-led team. But they've elected to fly one in, and they hope to be on track by Wednesday. But I have to think that's a bit of a tall order. Also of note, you mentioned the the, the new bridge um, in relation to the fire there. But uh, that was a first chance for you, I think, to see some of... These facility upgrades, I know they were well underway when you were there for the Encore, but uh, it's probably in a different state now, the track, as it prepares to host this Super Sebring weekend. What did you see? What did you make of all the the various infrastructure improvements and projects that have been going on in preparation for this event? Yeah, it wasn't just the WEC pit lane. It was actually all around the track. Um, There were some new barriers in some places, Um, definitely some increased safety uh, measures for LMP1 cars, um, it was really great to sort of see Sebring take a big step up um, for that. Um, but regarding the pit lane, the paddock, it was really cool to sort of see all that come together. Um, it reminded me a lot of a Formula E race. And that's no disrespect to, to WEC in any regard. But, um, you know, obviously they have a unique situation here where they had to build a lot of temporary structures to house the, the championship because there are no garages. There is no pit lane, per se. They had to create a pit lane on the backstretch and... Um, walking up and down pit lane it was really interesting to sort of you know walk in between each team's pit box at per se because you don't get that chance to do that in any other wec race i think the last time we had that was sebring 2012 so um you know interesting to sort of see the tire warmers right behind the boxes and then the cars being wheeled to the to pit lane just as they would 
be in an IMSA race, for instance. Um, so the, 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 their garages are set up in tents behind the pit box. And um, it's a pretty unique setup. I, I think there's enough space for everybody there. Um, we'll see when the IMSA team sort of roll into the, the paddock and see everything filled up. But um, judging by what we saw over the weekend, I'd say it was a really professionally um, set up uh, infrastructure and, and, and definitely um, something that I think that took a lot of time and effort from all involved to, to put together. Yeah, looking forward to seeing it myself here in a couple of days. And it's going to be an interesting weekend, that's for sure. We'll be previewing it a little bit later in the show. But next, we'll chat with Jade Buford. He'll be racing at Sebring in Michigan Pilot Challenge, but picked up a win in Pirelli GT4 America, race number two over the weekend at St. Petersburg. We'll talk to him about that, Sebring, and more next on the podcast. Hi, I'm Jerome Liekemolen, and you're listening to Sports Car 365 Double Stint Podcast. Jade Buford joining us now on the Double Stint Podcast. He drives for PF Racing primarily in the IMSA Michelin Pilot Challenge, but also in SRO America's Pirelli GT4 America. Picked up a win in the debut of the uh, GT4 Sprint season over the weekend in race two at St. Petersburg. Jade, thanks for coming on the show with us. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to be here. Well, let's talk about the weekend. It was primarily a good one, but maybe let's get uh, the, the, <laughs> the disappointment out of the way first. You had a dominant car in race one, and unfortunately it didn't quite go your way. Can you take us through what happened on the, the late race restart that saw the, the lead slip out of your grasp? Yeah, everything was going really great, but uh, I got caught out by the pain. I knew I didn't want to be down there, uh, but Spencer kind of had a good little run on me on the restart. And so it kind of forced me to go where I didn't want to go and just simply misjudged it, how slick the, the paint would be when I got into the ABS and then could never get out of it. Can you explain that for the layman, just how different the, the grip level feels for you in the race car, changing from the different surfaces that you find on, on a racetrack like St. Pete, but specifically the paint that you encounter on, on the airport runway? Yeah, St. Pete's so unique with all the paint from all the streets and then versus the, even the runway itself. Uh, and that almost gives you a, the preferred line almost to start that race is on the outside going into turn one because that's where you actually have the grip. The, the amount of grip, like I expected it to be slicker down there, but I, I didn't even compensate nearly enough for how slick it would be. It was like I was driving on basically a wet surface and hoping for a dry grip. Uh, so it was pretty night and day. Uh, the things you have to kind of look for as you're driving around St. Pete is kind of where that paint is because that goes uh, for several other spots on the track. Breaking for turn four, you almost sometimes want to be uh, a little to the inside and making the radius of the corner a little smaller uh, as uh, marbles build up and as that paint gets slick. Yeah, interesting stuff and one of the interesting challenges of racing on the street course the good news though is you were able to exercise that demon pretty quickly racing again the next day and had the dominant car how how much of redemption a sense of redemption did you feel when not only did you win the race on sunday but you did so in a dominant fashion uh, it was definitely nice uh, we i felt like i let everybody down on the first day uh, it was ours to win and we just couldn't capitalize on it so to come back and just have a good, clean race. I was glad to see it go green the entire 50 minutes. 
and just bring the car home in one piece and a good flawless run. The team that you drive for, PF Racing, I'm not sure that all of our listeners are, are totally familiar with the team. Uh, I, I asked uh, the team owner, J.R. Pesic, what it stands for, and he said it's Pesic Family Racing. And it mm-hmm. seems to me that the F, the family part, that's a real important component of this operation. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're very much a, a family. We do everything all together. Uh, and it, it's just kind of how it is. Everybody treats everybody like family on the team. So we see something, we say something. At the same time, it's all said with love. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's a good environment to be in, and I'm sure not one that, that you find just everywhere that you show up to race. Yeah, yeah it's very rare. Uh, all the time I've been in racing, there have probably been some of the greatest people uh, I've ever had the chance to work for. That's great to hear. And so successful here in the last couple of years with this Mustang platform that you've really uh, been a big part of here ever since uh, the GT4 came out. You've been racing it in various series. How has the car evolved in your time um, racing the, the new GT4 Mustang? Uh, it's a bunch of little things. The uh, more time we get with the car, the more we figure out what it likes. We have a pretty extensive notebook after all these years on the car. A lot of Manufacturers are now coming out with new cars. We have uh, three solid years on the same platform, so we know exactly what it likes while they're going to be going through maybe some learning curves uh, over the next season with all a bunch of new cars coming out. Uh, we know our platform very well. We know what it likes, and uh, there's still some minor tweaks and adjustments going on that can be made within the homologation process, and it's all for the better. And looks like it, too, with uh, the results that we've seen. I-, I was talking with the team owner, JR, over the weekend, and he reminded me of something I had forgotten about, which was the story of how it was that you came to be racing with this team in the first place. I believe you were r- running for a different team up in Canada in, uh, in one of the KTMs, if I'm remembering this right, a couple of years back and, and racing against the team and this Mustang. So can you tell the story for folks who don't know it? Well, it was for a Florida-based Racer's Edge, and I was driving the Sin R1, uh, the Sin car. Yep. And uh, they were actually racing uh, my Mustang from uh, Sebring the week before that I won the race with at, at driving an IMSA. Uh, and then uh, they, they had, I even told them, I was like, y'all have the car to beat. Uh, there's no way I should ever been able to beat that car. And talking, they had some of the Multimatic guys working for them. So the way he found me is I was talking to some of the Multimatic guys uh, after the race, asking them why they lost to me. <laughs> and I was sitting on the back of their hauler laughing. That's fantastic. And it says a lot about the character of of JR where he, you know, he's going to take that and um, and embrace it and find a way then to bring you into the fold. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was my first time meeting them, and then every time since then, I think we hooked up at a, a test, a big four test, uh, later in that year, and it all came together. Fantastic. Well, looking ahead then to next week, you guys uh, stay in Florida, heading over to Sebring. Uh, busy weekend at Sebring, of course, with the uh, World Endurance Championship and, and WeatherTech Championship, but also Michelin Pilot Challenge is going to be there. What are your expectations as you show up with your, your pink car, the the other chassis that's going to be racing in IMSA? Yep. Uh, Sebring's always been a pretty solid track for the Mustang. So uh, I have high expectations. I expect us to be competitive. 
and uh, we'll see how it goes. It's going to be a pretty exciting week. Uh, I saw some pretty astronomical numbers for fan expectations, and it's going to be a pretty crazy show, I think. Now we're looking forward to it, that's for sure. Hey, congratulations on the win over the weekend. It was awesome to see a great bounce back on Sunday, and appreciate the time here on the podcast this week. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Thank you for having me. Hi, I'm Stephen Simpson, and you're listening to Sports Car 365's Double Stint Podcast. Back on Double Stint, time to get to listener questions. We've got a couple. The first came in on Twitter using the hashtag AskDoubleStintJohn. It comes from at Traft99, who wanted to know, what is your take on Reese foregoing Sebring on account of of BOP. I know we talked about it a little bit on the show last week, but if you wanted to expand upon your thoughts, what did you think of uh, their stated rationale? Yeah, I think the decision, to be clear, their decision to not do Sebring came before IMSA released the BOP for the race. And um, the BOP was significantly in better for the Ferrari um, following you know, the, the Rolex 24, but I think the decision had already been made um, I, I think what's really been discouraging from Ferrari, from Reese's standpoint, is that since they're not a full season entrant, they can't, there's not a lot of data for the car. And IMSA is the way IMSA's BOP system is, it encourages full season teams, you know, where they use data from previous races, they build up the, the collection and then they make adjustments. And it's sort of gotten to a case where it's just really difficult to balance ferrari with only doing a handful of races every year especially with daytona having its own bop um, my personal take i you know i could understand team's concerns very well but you know it's only going to take the team to do a full season in order to be rewarded with maybe a more fair bop so it's kind of a catch-22 um you know it's a shame we're not going to see the ferrari at, at sebring i think it'll be the first time since uh, 2012 we won't have a ferrari GTE car on the grid or a Reese car on the grid for that matter in the 12 hours. So um, all in all, I think it's a, you know, it's an unfortunate situation. Yep. I couldn't agree more, but uh, hopefully we'll see them back later in the season. Final question comes from the Z man 97, who wants to know, is there any possibility that the recently released 917 concept photos could have anything to do with an upcoming hypercar? Not that I'm aware of um, Porsche had been in some dialogue with Hypercar, but they were sort of just, you know, having a seat around the table just to sort of see what's happening. I don't, I'm not aware of any active efforts for Porsche to re-enter with a Hypercar at this point. Okay, thank you for the question. And if you have a question for our show next week, you can use the hashtag AskDoubleStint on Twitter or leave a comment in the comment section from this week's show. Finally, a preview of what's to come this weekend, John. We've got both the WEC and IMSA Various IMSA championships in action at Sebring here this weekend. We'll start with the 1,000-mile race for the WEC. What can you tell us first about the entry list and your expectations as uh, the Globetrotting Championship comes back to Sebring for the first time in quite a while? Yeah, it's a highly anticipated weekend for sure. Um, Their race, obviously, on Friday before the the 12-hour the following day. Uh, 34 cars entered. We saw the majority of them on track already this past weekend, and um, like we said, I think Toyota remains a, a firm favorite there. Um, it's in some interesting um, speed from from the Fords and Porsches and GTE Pro. 
Um, GTE AM's always one to to look out for. So um, yeah, it should be an interesting week for for them. You know, um, interesting schedule as well. You know, sort of on the second half of each day, given their late start on Friday. Um, but yeah, um, just looking forward to seeing what sort of kicks off and and how everything unfolds. Yeah, I am too. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be busy, but. From everything I've heard, the the fan turnout is expected to be really good. The track has made some noises. That ticket sales have been excellent, and I think for a fan's perspective, this is going to be a, a really memorable year to see these two championships sharing the track together. How about uh, the IMSA weekend, starting with the WeatherTech Championship, John? What is uh, the the level of excitement in the build up to the Mobile One Twelve Hours of Sebring? Yeah, I think we've been talking all about WEC returning to Sebring for the first time in quite a few years, but we've sort of almost overlooked what IMSA is. Um, you know, it's an unbelievable championship, what we've seen at Daytona. It's really going from strength to strength, and um, this weekend's no different. Um, not many changes in the entry list from what we expected. Um, we're down a little bit on car count compared to what it was at, at Daytona, but I, I think that was always to be expected. Um, nonetheless, I think 38 cars for for Daytona for the the 12 hours of Sebring, so that'll be a good number. Um, it could result in less cautions for for the race, which is always a good thing to sort of get into a rhythm. And um, yeah, it's uh, if we're still awake by uh, 10 p.m. <laughs> on on Saturday, I think it'll be a, a legendary weekend, perhaps. Yeah, I think so too. And again, one that people are going to remember for a long time to come. We've also got a prototype challenge. In action this weekend, Michelin Pilot Challenge in action as well. It's just a smorgasbord of sports car racing at Sebring this weekend. Uh, you can find the Pilot Challenge preview story with the entry list and updated BOP as well. There was uh, some news there with a pretty major change, actually. You can detail that quickly, John, about uh, what, what the McLaren is going to be dealing with and also the new Aston Martin Vantage GT4 has undergone quite a change, too. Yeah, after after a pretty dominant run by the McLarens in Daytona, they've been slapped with a 50-kilo weight increase for Sebring. Uh, the Aston, the new for 2019 Vantage GT4, they've been um, given 45 less kilos of weight for Sebring. So some drastic changes there in the BOP, um, but looking forward to seeing those cars on track and see how that is affected. Definitely. So the full entry list and uh, the details about the various tweaks to the BOP can be found in our story at SportsCar365. Tons of coverage coming your way. I promise we're going to have this uh, this race, these races covered as well as anybody. So make sure you're checking out the website throughout the course of the week. It's going to be fun, and it's going to be busy. We'll see you there here soon, John. Sounds good. All right. That's it for us on the show this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'd love a rating and a review on iTunes as well if you have some time. But for now, so long. This has been the Double Stint Podcast. Speak to you again next week. Oh, 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 oh,